Well, this, contrary to what uh, the whole world might think, is actually what God thinks. This is his word. So let's pray and ask him for his help this morning. Heavenly Father, we do thank and praise you for giving us your word. We pray that as we learn now about the true godliness that you want from us, that you'll help us to be able to clear away all of the the wrong thoughts that the world has put in our minds and understand uh, what your word is saying and what true godliness is. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. In the city of Athens, from the year 428 to 347 BC, there lived a bloke by the name of Plato. Now, Plato was a philosopher. And one of the most important things that Plato pondered as a philosopher philosopher, was what they call ontology, that is, the nature of reality. What is really real? And in in terms of people... Plato was of the view that, is what, that what is most real about us is our souls. Plato actually believed that we are pre-existing, eternal, immortal souls. And we existed before this life in what's called the world of the forms. That is, a, the, the world of ultimate reality. Through some terrible quirk, we were taken from the world of the forms and placed within a physical body and in this physical world. Now, Plato recognised that if you're trying to understand what is real about us, our physical bodies, they're in a constant state of flux, always changing. Take a photo, tomorrow it's not you anymore, you're different. Okay, soon your body will fade away. Our bodies have no persistent, enduring, describable reality about them. But our souls, Plato said are immortal and permanent and unchanging. And so for Plato, it's our soul that matters. That's what's really real about us. That's who we really are. And so for Plato, what's important in life is to nurture your soul. And surprise, surprise, Plato was of the view that the way to nurture your soul is through the study of philosophy. Slightly self-serving, you might think, but uh, I think he actually believed it. Well, in the years that followed, uh, many, many people picked up on Plato's ideas, particularly as the the Greek Empire was extraordinarily influential in the world of the day. And uh, people especially picked up this idea that man is some kind of an eternal bodiless soul bound up inside a physical body. People began to say that our physical bodies and the stuff of the world around us is somehow inferior to our soul. Uh, Even, some people would say, evil that uh, the goal of life is therefore to be released from your physical body and set free to be, to be a soul. Uh, hence we get all these wrong views of heaven, of you know, bodiless souls floating in, in, heaven, in clouds and so on. Because, because this sort of thinking then spilled over into religion. People thought of godliness as otherworldliness. They said godliness means putting aside the material stuff of this life and focusing on the higher realm of the soul. This sort of teaching had a profound influence on Judaism and, as we'll see in 1 Timothy chapter 4, it also influenced Christianity. Back in chapter 3, you may remember, Paul was telling Timothy that he's got to appoint godly overseers and deacons to look after the church. He's got to appoint faithful Christians to do the job because, as he says in verse 15 of chapter 3, the church is God's household, the church of the living God. The, the, the pillar and the foundation of the truth. Nice image, isn't it? Pillar, 
foundation of the truth. It is, it is holding the truth up, stopping it from collapsing. In other words, the church is the place where you will find people who teach the truth about God and Jesus and godliness. And one important part of that is, of holding up the truth, is teaching about what true godliness is. And so, Paul reminds Timothy what true godliness is. He says it's a mystery. It doesn't mean a um, uh, time warp sort of a mystery or something like that. A mystery is just a secret. that It was unknown, but now it's been revealed. So what is it? What's the, what's the secret of godliness? Chapter 3, verse 16, godliness is all about Jesus. Have a look with me. 1 Timothy, chapter 3, and verse 16. Beyond all question, this revealed secret of godliness is great. He appeared in a body. Who's that talking about? Was vindicated by the Spirit. Who's that talking about? Was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. What's the secret of godliness? Godliness is is, is Jesus. The Jesus who came as a man, the Jesus who rose from the dead as our king, the Jesus who was preached on, who is Lord of heaven and earth, who is believed on in the world. That's what godliness is about. No, that's not what godliness is about. That's who godliness is about. Godliness is a person. Godliness is Jesus. And so, if you and I want to be godly, what we need is Jesus' godliness. We need it somehow credited to us. We need it counted as our godliness. We, we need to be so kind of united with Jesus that his godliness is counted as ours. We need to be so on his team that, that his victory becomes our victory. And the great news of the Bible is that we can have that by relying on Jesus, by faith in Jesus. And so we need to ask God to graciously accept us as having the godliness of Jesus. Can you see the point? True godliness is Jesus. And so, like every other aspect of our salvation, godliness comes as a free gift from God when we rely on Jesus. It comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. But uh, in Ephesus, while Timothy was there, there were false teachers, and they were teaching a different kind of godliness. seems a bit weird, really, to have false teachers in the pillar and foundation of the truth. But sadly, that's the way it is. And and Paul starts off chapter 4 by saying it's not a surprise. God has warned us that there will be false teachers. Chapter 4 and verse 1. The Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. A couple of things to notice there. First, notice that God has warned us about false teaching. It's in his word. It's in the Old Testament. Uh, Jesus himself warned about false teachers. Uh, Second reading, Paul told the Ephesians, false teachers are going to rise up from among you. We, We mustn't be surprised by false teaching in churches. We mustn't assume that ministers or priests or religious leaders know what they are talking about. We mustn't assume that that they are good people or that they've got our good in mind. God has warned us about false teachers. We need to be on guard. Second, notice the role of deceiving spirits and demons there in verse 1. 
I don't know how you picture a demonised person. Uh, maybe you're looking for someone with their head spinning around, vomiting out green vomit, or you're looking for um, a pitchfork and red tights or something like that. But can you see they're the really dangerous demonised people? It's those lovely ministers with their soothing voices who tell you you can be godly without Jesus, who tell you what a nice person you are, who give you a whole heap of rules to obey so that you can be godly. They are the dangerous, demonic ones. Teachers who teach falsely about Jesus and godliness. Look out for them. All right. Paul is saying to Timothy, there will be false teachers. And in verse 3, Paul tells us where the false teachers in Ephesus were going wrong in their teaching about godliness. They were teaching that godliness is about abstaining from physical stuff. Abstaining from marriage, abstaining from certain foods. Maybe they were saying you've got to be kosher if there's still Jewish influence, as it seems there was. Or maybe it's some other prohibition, like you've got to be a vegetarian or something like that. Verse 3. They, that's the false teachers, they forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods. Now, what these t- teachers are saying is probably a sort of a mishmash of Judaism and Platonism, as existed very commonly in the first century. Uh, we've already seen that these guys were using God's law improperly, uh, using it as if people can obey it, when, of course, we can't. But, uh, but this teaching goes further than that, because there's nothing in Judaism that, that forbids or prohibits marriage. Uh, behind this sort of teaching is the Platonic idea that the physical world is bad or inferior. And so godliness means abstaining from physical stuff like, uh, like food and sex. But Paul says no. That is wrong teaching. It is a false path to godliness. And what he does, he takes us back to the book of Genesis in the Bible where it says God, God looked on his creation and saw that it was good. Good. Paul reminds Timothy of the truth. God's creation is good. Stuff is good. And godly people will enjoy it with thanks to God who gave it to them. Verse 3 again. Forbid people to marry, order them to abstain from certain foods. Which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. God's creation is good. Sure, it's fallen. Sure, it is under the judgment of God. But still, physical stuff is not bad in itself. Marriage, food, they are good gifts from God. And, And the godly person, the person who wants to please God, will enjoy them with thanks to God. If you think about it, it it, it, it makes sense. I mean, if you give someone a gift, you don't want them to put it aside and never use it, do you? That's not what's going to please you. What will please you if you give someone a gift is if they say, thank you very much, and enjoy it, and use it. God has given us good gifts. He's given us good stuff here in this world, physical stuff. Stuff like marriage, and sex, and food, and drink. It's good stuff. So let's enjoy and give thanks to him. Paul says to Timothy, you want to be a good servant of the church? You want to be a good minister? You need to point that out. Uh, If you do that, you will be serving the church well, verse 6. If you point these things out to the brothers, 
you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus. That's actually a good deacon of Christ Jesus. Brought up in the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you have followed. Abstinence is not godliness. And so Paul says to Timothy, instead of these false paths to godliness, instead of these myths and superstitions about what God wants, he says you've got to train yourself in real godliness. Uh, the sort of godliness that he's already explained and revealed to us in chapter 3, verse 16. The godliness that comes by grace, through faith in Jesus. Because Paul says that sort of godliness is eternally valuable. Verse 7. Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. Do you see it there? True godliness, that is the godliness of Jesus that comes to us by grace through faith, that is eternally valuable to us. Believing in Jesus is eternally valuable to us because, well, Paul says it's because of the trustworthy fact that God saves those who believe in Jesus. He says there's only one God who can save anyone, and that one God, more specifically, saves the people who believe in Jesus. The godliness of believing in Jesus is eternally valuable because God saves people who believe. Verse 9. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance, and for this we labour and strive that we've put our hope in the living God who is the saviour of all men and especially, or better and more specifically, of those who believe. Okay, can you see the point that Paul's making? It's all about godliness. What it takes to be a godly person. The false teachers in Ephesus have got it all wrong. Godliness is not about abstention from physical stuff. It's not about avoiding marriage or foods. God created this world good. Things like food and marriage, they are good gifts from God for Christians to enjoy with thanks to God. The godliness that God wants from us is to rely on Jesus. So we have Jesus' godliness. God saves people who rely on Jesus. And so Timothy needs to ignore the old wives' tales about what's godly. He needs to ignore the demonic uh, stories and doctrines about what is godly. He needs to ignore all the platonic stuff about abstaining from things in the physical realm. And he needs to train himself to rely on Jesus in everything. It's dead simple, isn't it? Pretty clear, pretty obvious sort of a message, don't you think? Well, unfortunately, in the centuries after Paul wrote to Timothy, Platonism continued to exercise a very strong influence over Christianity. People still thought of the physical realm as evil or inferior. And so, a few centuries down the track, you get things like the monastic movement, the first of the monks, Starting in about the 4th century, people got the idea that they had to leave their families if they wanted to be godly. They had to head off into the desert and spend their lives depriving themselves. Fasting, meditating, sitting on a pole, or hiding in a cave. They found all different kinds of ways of depriving themselves of physical stuff so they could focus on their soul. Uh, eventually these sorts of ideas led to people establishing monasteries. And then by the time of the Middle Ages, the accepted view was that there are two kinds of people. Your religious class and your secular class. The religious class was made up of bishops and priests and monks and nuns. 
they had renounced marriage, they'd renounced worldly occupations, didn't have a job, and they supposedly, allegedly, spent their lives fasting and praying in pursuit of the realm of the soul. That's the religious class. But meanwhile, the ordinary people, the, the secular class, they had to work for a living. They had to get their hands dirty. They were the ones who got themselves married and had children and did all that fleshy sort of stuff. And the accepted view of the Middle Ages was that the religious class was spiritually superior to the secular class. They were the ones who were really godly. They were the ones who had a connection with God. The secular people, they never had a chance. They couldn't, they couldn't be truly religious with their earthly, fleshy, muddy, physical lives. Godliness was out of their reach. And so the accepted view was that the secular class needed the religious class to do their religion for them. They needed people like priests and monks to pray for them and mediate between them and God. All, of course, for a very reasonable fee. Well, praise God, during the 13 and 1400s, under the influence of what was called humanism, people started to go back to the Bible in its original languages. And then by the 1500s, this truth of 1 Timothy 4 was rediscovered. Abstaining from stuff does not make you godly. Godliness is not otherworldliness. Godliness comes to us by God's grace through faith in Jesus alone. The uh, reformer, Martin Luther, he puts it beautifully. Let me quote from him. Martin Luther says, although I, am un although I am an unworthy and condemned man, my God has given me in Christ all the riches of righteousness and salvation without any merit on my part, out of pure, free mercy, so that from now on I need nothing except faith which believes that this is true. Trusting in Jesus gives you all the riches of righteousness and salvation. Remember, Jesus is godliness. 1 Timothy 3.16 You can't get any more godly than Jesus' godliness. And if you are relying on Jesus, that's what you've got. You have got the godliness of Jesus. I'll swap that for any monk's godliness any day of the week. I'll take Jesus' godliness. If you've got Jesus' godliness, you are as godly as you can possibly be. And so there is no such thing as a religious class and a secular class. Let me quote again from Luther. All Christians whatsoever really and truly belong to the religious class. And there is no difference among them except insofar as they do different work. Abstinence from the stuff of this world is not godliness. Otherworldliness is not godliness. Jesus is godliness. That was a vital and world-shattering rediscovery of the Reformation. And the thing is this. It is still vital for you and me to get these truths right today. Both sides of it. That abstinence is not godliness and pursuing real godliness. Because it's vital that we understand what 1 Timothy chapter 4 is saying here. Um... Because it's just so widespread, the wrong doctrine. Now, first, we need, to, we need to reject the doctrine that godliness means abstinence from physical stuff. Now, despite what the Bible says, despite its reaffirmation in the Reformation, this demonic teaching is still vastly widespread. In, 
in fact, it's by far the majority view in our world today about religion. It's taken for granted in other religions, uh, certainly in Buddhism and Hinduism. Uh, the very essence of godliness in these religions is to be released from the physical realm. And so your monks, like the Dalai Lama or your yogis in India, they are the ones thought of as godly. Uh, Otherworldly people who deprive themselves of marriage and meat and other physical stuff. It's also true in Roman Catholicism. Roman Catholicism continues to endorse this demonic teaching. They continue to enforce celibacy on their so-called religious class, bishops and priests and nuns and monks. They continue to follow myths and old wives' tales about food, like fasting for Lent and not eating meat on Fridays. And you see it in various other groups as well. Seventh-day Adventists who enforce vegetarianism and myriad other examples. I think it's even true often for us. We often fall into the trap of thinking that godliness equates to some kind of otherworldliness. We think that godly people exist in some sort of ethereal bubble, somehow distanced from the mud and blood and stuff of everyday life as they spend their lives constantly in prayer. Uh, I've experienced it myself. People think of me as some kind of religious class and so they ask me to say grace or me to, me to pray for them. Uh, I remember one time I inherited a, a, a Saab from my, uh, from my grandfather and every time I drove it around, people would say, oh, well, ooh, we don't really need to pay you anymore. Now you've got a Saab, do you? <laughs> as if I'm some kind of religious class that can't enjoy a nice thing. I only got $2,000 for it in the end anyway. But uh, <clears throat> Well, it might be the majority view that otherworldliness is godliness, but it is demonic lies. It's lies from the devil. If people want to be single, that's fine. If people want to be vegetarians or eat kosher or whatever, that's fine. There's no harm in it. In some contexts, it may be helpful in their service to God. But if people think they are being godly by abstaining from marriage or foods, they are dead wrong. And if people teach other people that they've got to abstain from marriage or foods as godliness, then that is the doctrine of demons. I hope that we never fall into that frowning, sour, life-denying, abstinence view of godliness. I hope we never become the sort of Christians who think that we are godly because of all the stuff we don't do, because we don't drink or smoke or dance or play cards except on church camps. Uh, I hope that we are the sort of people who can thankfully enjoy the stuff of this life, not not idolise it, not make it the centre of our lives, not put it in God's place, but thankfully enjoy it. I hope that those of us who are married and well enough are having rich and enjoyable sex lives. I hope there's lots of sex happening in this church, within your marriage, I mean. Still rich and enjoyable. I hope we're giving thanks to God for sex in our marriages. I hope that we're able to tuck into our food and drink with vigour and enjoyment and thanks to God. God's given us these good gifts and godly people should have no trouble tucking in and saying, thank you very much, Lord. You see the point? Abstinence is not godliness. Jesus is godliness. And so people who trust in Jesus are free to enjoy the good things of this life with thanks to the God who gave them. We need to reject this demonic doctrine that godliness means abstinence from physical stuff. And instead, lastly, what we've got to do is train ourselves in true godliness. 
You don't need to head off to a monastery for a life without sex and food to be godly. If you rely on Jesus, you are godly. And so, living a life of godliness is for you. It is your task. You're not part of some secular class that doesn't need to worry about godliness. Godliness is not something that you pay me or Warren or someone else to do for you. In Christ, godliness is for you. And so you need to train yourself in godliness. That is, you need to train yourself to rely on Jesus in every aspect of your life. Godliness means, picture it as, as, it means bringing Jesus with you, so to speak, into every aspect of your life. It means bringing Jesus with you into, into your real life, into all the muck and gunk of your real life. It's fine for you to be married. It's fine for you to enjoy sex. But do bring Jesus into your marriage. Do marriage his way. Be the kind of loving, considerate, other person-centered, other person-centered person that Jesus calls you to be. It's fine for you to enjoy food. Tuck into your T-bone steak and chippies or your pork chops. Enjoy your cold beer or your glass of wine. But bring Jesus to your table. Give thanks and praise to him. Be generous and hospitable with what God has given you. It's fine for you to get out and have a real job. It's a good, loving thing to do. A good thing, get out and get your hands dirty. Deal with the, the, the real people out there with all their complications. But take Jesus to work with you. Trust him at work. Work to serve him. Commend him by your words and your actions. Let me quote again from Martin Luther. He put it beautifully. He wrote this. A shoemaker, a smith, a farmer, each has his manual occupation and work, and yet at the same time, all are to act as priests. Every one of them, in his occupation or handicraft, ought to be useful to his fellows and serve them in such a way that the various trades are all directed to the best advantage of the community and promote the well-being of body and soul. True godliness is about Jesus. Godliness comes to us by grace, through faith in him. It's a free gift from God to you. You've got it. You're as godly as you can be. And so our task as Christians is not to uh, get away from this world and live in some kind of a spiritual bubble. We're not Platonists. Our task is to grow in true godliness, to bring Jesus with us into our real lives, into our families, into our homes, into our workplaces. Godliness means you and me staying fixed in Christ, believing in him, because God is not the saviour of those who abstain. God is the saviour of those who believe. Let's pray. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we call you gracious God and loving Heavenly Father and yet we, um, we're often sour and pinched and, and, and ignore the, uh, the great things that you give us. Our Father, we thank you for the good stuff of this life. We thank you for, 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 for mud and blood and food and sex and for hot showers and for um, tucking into T-bone steaks. And we thank you for all of the good things that we can enjoy. We pray, Heavenly Father, that we won't be idolaters making these things our God, but that we will be grateful receivers of your good gifts. Our Father, help us in all things to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and stand firm in him, for he is our one true Saviour. And we pray in his name. Amen.